Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 33, Satan's Kingdom Divided. Sometime in the late reign of James VI and I, in a small rectory, in a small village. A husband and wife were going through a trial countless families have endured throughout time, although the husband was in substantially less pain. This trial was, of course, childbirth, and the woman had gone through it at least three times before. The husband, surrounded by his fellows, were praying to their god to keep both mother and child safe from evil during this dangerous procedure. The mother was called Mary, the husband James, of Great Wenham in the county of Suffolk in England. They were already parents to three sons named Thomas, John, and James, and once Mary's efforts were complete, they had a fourth. When the boy was baptised, he too was given the name of another of Christ's disciples, Matthew. So welcome back to the history of witchcraft. Last time we considered the historiographical arguments over how and why the deadliest witch trial in English history occurred. This episode we will be concerned with the opening moves of the Hopkins trials, and on the origins of the witch finders themselves, Matthew Hopkins and John Stern. The title for today's episode is a reference to Hopkins' response to the suggestion that he himself was a witch, and that he was carrying out evil deeds. His response is simply, If Satan's kingdom be divided against itself, how shall it stand? How indeed, Matthew, how indeed. Matthew's father, James Hopkins, was a minister, a godly man who had studied, and later taught, at Cambridge University, and who was ordained at Ely Cathedral in 1609, taking up his role in Great Wenham in 1612. Cambridge was a hotbed of Puritanism, and if James was not a follower of this particular branch of Calvinism already, he sure was by the time he left. The Hopkins household was a devout and zealous one, and the young Matthew Hopkins took to his father's teaching like a fish to water. As to be expected for the son of a minister, Matthew heard countless sermons from his father and his father's colleagues as well as less public efforts in the study of the Bible and of personal prayer. When Charles succeeded his father and became king, he began to institute religious reforms that looked like the arguments of the Dutch theologian, Arminius. James Hopkins's fellow Puritans were incensed. Professor Malcolm Gaskill, whose book, Witchfinders, is the basis for much of this episode, speculated that the Hopkins household was just as angered by the reappearance of institutions long thought expelled as their Puritan neighbours. He suggests that, quote, If there was one aspect of his childhood more likely than any other to have initiated and inspired Matthew's career as a witchfinder, this was it, end quote. When William Lord, Bishop of London, became William Lord Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, the second highest figure in the English church behind the king himself, the church authorities began to clamp down on disobedient Puritans within its hierarchy, admonishing and later dismissing recalcitrant priests who firmly kept to their faith. 
many Puritans, staunchly rejecting this perceived oppression of their faith, emigrated to New England. The Hopkins family, however, remained in Old England. Not for want of trying, however, writing to his friend and the then governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, he complained about the religious reforms of the new archbishop. In one letter in 1634, he promised that, quote, I have a purpose to make myself a member of your plantation, and when I come, I hope that I shall not come alone. That purpose was unfulfilled, however, as the Hopkins patriarch became bedridden during that winter and died in January 1635. Young Matthew, probably about 14 years old at this time, did not receive his father's books, like James Hopkins the Younger, nor was he dispatched to the New World, like Thomas. He did not follow his father and other brothers into Cambridge or the church, despite the family having the means to pay. Instead, the common story is that Matthew went into law, becoming a clerk to a lawyer in Ipswich, about eight miles to the southwest of Great Wenham. This story may well be true. However, Professor Gaskell points out the flimsiness of this evidence. A single signature on a 1941 conveyance document is the only evidence that Hopkins was so employed. Hardly the most ironclad of alibis, but this is just another part of Hopkins' pre-Civil War life that is shrouded in mystery. Whatever his profession, Hopkins soon moved to the big smoke of Manning Tree, Essex. He appears to have received some measure of inheritance from his father and bought a house there. The Manning Tree that Hopkins found in the 1640s was a small but prosperous little trading town, attracting people from across the southeast. One of those people was a John Stern, who was in his mid-thirties when he appeared in Manningtree in 1645. He had grown up in rural Suffolk, like Hopkins, and had married a woman called Agnes Corston, unlike Hopkins, and made a home in Bury St Edmunds, having a daughter sometime before 1644. Like Hopkins, Stern was a zealous Puritan, and when they met, in the words of Gaskill, each saw a future in collaboration with the other. As well as similar geographical origins, the two men shared a gentility that originated more in self-assertion than in wealth, estate, breeding, or title. Above all, they were men of action, end quote. It shouldn't be a surprise to learn that the start of the Hopkins trials began like any other witch panic, with a single spark. That spark came in the form of a woman, Elizabeth Clark, who had been suspected of killing the cattle of a local gentleman, Richard Edwards, in 1644. The animals were being driven past the home of Clark, and two dropped dead from no apparent natural disease. Following this, Edwards' newborn son was housed with a Manning Tree wet nurse, who was also a neighbour to Clark. When the baby fell into, quote, very strange fits, extending the limbs and rolling the eyes, end quote, and died a few days later, Clark was the prime suspect. After a spate of accusations against other witches in neighbouring communities, the people of Manningtree confronted Clark in 1645 about being a witch. Surprisingly, the one-legged octogenarian seems to have admitted that she knew a coven of witches, but refused to say who they were. This partial confession was written down by none other than John Stern, 
who personally knew the local justices of the peace, Sir Harbottle Grimston and Sir Thomas Bowes. This was important. The local lordship was vacant since the occupant had died in 1638, and the town's rector had moved to London in 1643 and followed his absent lord to the grave shortly after. The usual chain of command was absent, and so Stern had a substantial amount of informal power in Manningtree and became the point of contact for the magistrates. On Friday, the 21st of March, 1645, Grimston and Bowes took their places in an assembly hall at the centre of town, ready to hear and consider the cases brought before them. John Stern was called, and carried with him a transcript of Clark's confession. The magistrates considered the document, discussed it between them, and asked Stern for clarification on some points, before coming to a conclusion. When Stern strode triumphantly from the hall, he carried with him what he would later describe as, quote, a warrant for the searchings of such persons as I should nominate, end quote. First, Stern would acquire from Clark a list of names, and he found a willing and passionate assistant in the young gentleman Matthew Hopkins. Now, despite her previous willing confession, Clark now refused to incriminate herself further. So she was ordered searched by four godly women to search for the devil's teat. It isn't clear if Clark submitted herself to this treatment willingly, and neither is it clear if she was shaved of body hair. This was both a measure to make the search for the teat easier by exposing possible hiding places, and a popular method of making a witch confess. Whether Clark submitted or struggled, and kept her hair or was shaved, the women reported three growths that they judged to be unnatural. Next came the observation, to see if Elizabeth Clark's imps would come to her. The four search women were joined by two men, one of whom was a riotous Puritan and husband to one of the search women. Together, they had lost a daughter to an illness that was rumoured to have been caused by witchcraft, and had volunteered for this duty. Clark was placed under house arrest, seated in the centre of a room, and watched by her neighbours, turned jailers, throughout the night. The watchers stayed awake because of duty. Clark stayed awake because of the prods and pokes of the watchers. Yet, the imps did not deign to appear. This ordeal, for it was an ordeal, was repeated the following night, with similar results. The next day was Sunday, and for godly men and women the Sabbath was a day of rest, although Clark remained under guard. On Monday, the Watchers returned. Past midnight on this third night, the Watchers had grown bored. Bored of staring at an old woman, waiting for demonic servants to appear. Bored of nudging each other and their unwilling subject awake whenever they dozed off. Perhaps they'd been wrong, they might have thought to themselves. Maybe Widow Clark was not a servant of the devil after all. Maybe she was just an irritable old woman. A muffled bark caused them to stir, but it was the rapid flurry of knocks at the door that jerked everyone present into wakefulness. 
The cottage door swung slowly open on creaking hinges, softly banging against the wall as it revealed two cloaked figures, standing in the doorway, silhouetted by the waning crescent of the moon, accompanied by a huge, dark-furred dog. Elizabeth Clark, the lead figure boomed, and strode towards the sitting woman. Thank you to Professor Gaskell for that vivid imagery. Now, suffice it to say, these shadowy figures were not the servants of the devil, but they were just as friendly. They were, of course, John Stern and Matthew Hopkins, come to hurry this process along. Both men demanded the names of Widow Clark's accomplices, again and again, while Clark remained impassive. She'd been kept up for at least three days out of the last four, possibly even Sunday too. She was in her 80s, without a family, missing a leg, in poor health with two strange men shrieking at her. In her position, I'd be very happy with impassive. According to Gaskill, who is himself basing this tale on the writings of the Witchfinders, Clark kept up this strong front until the men gave up and went to leave. Only then did the poor woman speak up. If they promised not to hurt her, she would show them her imps. At first, Hopkins was reluctant, fearful for the harm the devil's demons could inflict. When asked why she was not scared of them, Clark supposedly responded, What, do you think I am afraid of my children? Overwhelmed by exhaustion, and believing their promises that she would not be harmed, Clark went on to answer the question that all present wanted to know. Quote, Hath the devil had the use of your body? I desire to know the truth, and know otherwise. End quote. She responded simply, It is true. When asked by Hopkins in what form the devil had first approached her, Clark replied to him, quote, A tall, proper, black-haired gentleman, a properer man than yourself, end quote. I'd like to think that Hopkins felt a little bit embarrassed there, maybe, especially since Stern then asked her who she would rather sleep with, and Clark said the devil. She went on to say that she had first had diabolic intercourse six or seven years before, that the devil visited her regularly and begged her for sex, and that these sessions lasted throughout the night, Warming to her theme, Clark then called out for her imps. According to Hopkins and Stern, half an hour after Clark called out the name Holt, a small white creature, like a small cat, appeared to greet Clark before retreating into the shadows. Then, Clark called out Jamara, and lo and behold, another creature appeared, described by Hopkins as, quote, an imp like to a dog, which was white, with some sandy spots, and seemed to be very fat and plump, with very short legs, who forthwith vanished away, end quote. Next came Vinegar Tom, which appeared like a greyhound with the legs of a deer, followed by a ferret-like imp, and one like a toad. Asked if there were more, Clark stated that these creatures could change into different shapes, and that there was one that was out still doing the devil's work, sack and sugar. This sack and sugar would soon return from his business, the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on, 
with a vicious streak a mile wide who would rip Stern and Hopkins to pieces for trying to have her swum. After that, I'm sure the wait was an anxious one, but when the creature finally appeared, it was just a rabbit. Not a killer rabbit, mind you, just a rabbit. Clark went on to assure those present that, oh, they were lucky, so lucky, he was in a good mood. Clark declared that anyone found with a mark like hers was in league with the devil, but that their absence was not the same as innocence. She recounted how she had, according to Gaskill, given permission to the devil to kill the livestock of her neighbours. She went on to do something we have seen many a time in the history of witchcraft, although not often in our episodes in England. She denounced a fellow witch. The naming of accomplices under pain of torture and threat of death is prevalent throughout European witch trials, and yet rarely occurred in the same manner in England. In Scotland, yes, as we've seen, but even with the Union of the Crowns, this behaviour didn't find its way into the normal English judicial system. We've covered this before, but it bears repeating. Torture in trials of witchcraft was not permitted, and so even those believers in a witchcraft conspiracy had fewer ways to force denunciations. Sleep deprivation was just one of the loopholes these witchfinders made use of. The name that passed the lips of this old, crippled, exhausted, and possibly delusional woman was Anne West of neighbouring Lawford. West had already been arrested once news spread of the magistrate's actions against Clark. The reputation of West and her daughter Rebecca was already poor. They were outsiders to Lawford, only having lived in the village for a few years. Their outward piety was rumoured to be merely a cover for the diabolic intent. In 1640, less than two years after first arriving in Lawford, Anne was accused of murdering the son of a prominent yeoman with sorcery. This accusation never led to charges, but the accusation of his neighbour the following year did. West was tried for witchcraft in spring of 1641, and acquitted of all charges. All well and good then? Hardly. At the next Assizes, a petition was brought to the Assembly that branded her, quote, a very dangerous person amongst her neighbours, end quote. Convinced by this court of public opinion, Justice Bowes had her arrested. When she could not raise the money to pay her bail, she was transferred to Colchester Castle, an ancient Norman fortress that was now, like so many medieval fortifications, fit only to keep people in rather than out. She was held there until March of 1642, whereupon she was brought before the Chelmsford Assizes, where she was again acquitted of all charges. We'll return to Anne West in a moment. The truth of this interrogation of Elizabeth Clark is unknown. All of this seems to have come from the Witchfinder's own account, and while it's a certainty that they have heavily embellished their tales, Something has to have occurred that night, and it certainly wasn't the summoning of the devil's servants. A woman, who possibly out of senility, or exhaustion, believed herself to be a witch, introduced her pets to a claustrophobic, dark, tense room, and told people who, who not only fully believed in the supernatural, but were here to meet the imps, that these animals were the imps in service to Satan. 
This seems to be the most persuasive interpretation. The entire incident could have just been invented out of whole cloth after the fact by the witchfinders, except for the fact that these details were brought up in Clark's trial, and so could have been disputed by the other witnesses at the time. It is noteworthy that the two witchfinders describe the beginning of these events slightly differently. For starters, in Hopkins' discovery of witchcraft, it was he himself who began the investigation a year before. He claimed to have overheard the witches of Manningtree discussing their deeds, and when discovered, they had threatened to kill him. This is just one of many, many embellishments, half-truths, and outright lies that we find in his discovery. Once this ad hoc interrogation was complete, Hopkins left with his greyhound and went straight to the home of one of Clark's supposed victims, Richard Edwards, and told him that she had admitted to killing his pigs. He seems to have stayed the night and left early in the morning. He later claimed that, on the way home, the greyhound spied a small white creature that appeared to have been the first of Clark's imps, and went for it. Hopkins claims he could not see well, but that his dog was unable to catch hold of the creature. When it returned, the dog had been bitten and was bleeding. After he got to his house, he noticed a large black cat in his garden, staring at him. Again, the dog chased it, but returned visibly shaking. It was the day after that event that Hopkins and Stern attended to the magistrates Grimston and Bowes. They recounted their experience of the Monday night and what Clark had confessed, requesting that she be formally questioned. To their credit, the magistrates demanded that the woman be allowed to rest so that she could answer the questions with a clear head. The watchers attended, having stayed after the witchfinders, and recounted that Clark had listed the deaths for which Anne West was responsible. A Lawford woman, a child in neighbouring Dedham, the wife of a Manningtree gentleman, and the deaths of a ship's crew who had been swept out to sea by an unexpected storm. Clark was now brought in, shaken awake from her short rest, and asked to begin at the beginning, and so she did. She recalled that about six months prior, she had been gathering kindling when Anne West passed her by. West had taken one look at this poor, old, disabled woman, a bundle of kindling under one arm and a crutch under the other, and made her an offer. Quote, there were always ways and means for her to live much better than she did, end quote. As West departed, she promised to lend Clark a kitten who would bring her food. A few nights later, two small furry creatures visited Clark and promised to, quote, help her to a husband who should maintain her ever after, end quote, in return for feeding. Clark agreed, and they suckled from her. This confession launched Hopkins and Stern into their infamous careers. Clark takes pride of place on the first page of Stern's account of his witch-hunting role, with him recalling that she, quote, was the first accused, and her marks and confession the beginning of our knowledge, end quote. In the middle of April, 1645, Matthew Hopkins rode through the Essex city of Colchester. 
The ancient Roman city was a thriving trading hub, a meeting place between poor local weavers and the rich Dutch merchants who bought their wares. The city was a staunch parliamentary stronghold, far from the military front, but dedicated to the spiritual one. The streets had been full of news from the capital. The self-denying ordinance had just been passed weeks before, and the forces of the godly were to be reorganised into a new model army. Members of parliament could remain either politician or soldier, but not both, and so focused on their chosen responsibility. The civil war between king and parliament entered a new phase. But the young man had no involvement in this, although he considered himself a godly man and would probably have been in favour of the ordinance. His attention was focused not on the military of modern England, but on a symbol of the old. Colchester Castle loomed above him, built centuries ago on the order of William the Conqueror, but it was no longer a structure for war. It was somewhat dilapidated. In fact, if you visit the castle today, you'll actually find it in a better situation than Hopkins did. For several decades now, it had been used as a prison to hold locals as they awaited trial, and one can hardly imagine worse conditions. The prisoners were routinely beaten by the jailers. Some cells were exposed to the elements on account of the roof being somewhat... non-existent? The others were condemned to weeks of darkness and filth in the dungeons. All these prisoners were shackled to the walls, some by both their hands and feet. Misbehaviour could result in a stay in the Little Ease, a cell accessible only by ladder, or in the Oven, little more than a hole in the ground. The sleeping arrangements consisted solely of straw, and when it rained, the walls themselves ran with water, pooling into stagnant puddles. Naturally, illness and death were common. Provided a prisoner both survived their stay and were acquitted at trial, because remember, this was not the punishment, they were charged for their time there. As Hopkins rode up, he was greeted by the man in charge, Stephen Hoy, and allowed into the fortress-turned-prison. He was led down into the dark cells, where the men and women were housed separately. He unlocked the door to the women's cell, and opened it to reveal, as Gaskill poetically puts it, a tableau of despair. Huddling in the dark, lit by the flickering torch held by Hoy, were six women, among them were Elizabeth Clark, Anne West, and her daughter Rebecca, who had been transferred shortly after Grimston and Bowes finished with their testimony. One of the other three was Anne Leach, a widow from the village of Mistley, who had been arrested after a search of her person revealed the witch's mark, and who had then confessed to a myriad of offences, including the murder of Richard Edward's son. Wait, you might be thinking... Wasn't Clark suspected of that death? Indeed she was, but that didn't mean the others could not also be guilty. Leach, in turn, had implicated a neighbour called Elizabeth Gooding, and described attending a meeting at Clark's house with Gooding, Clark, and Anne West. Together, they had read aloud from a book, quote, wherein she thinks there was no goodness, end quote. This had led to the denunciation of Leach's daughter, Helen Clark, who was already the prime suspect in the untimely death 
of the daughter of the husband and wife team that had taken part in watching Elizabeth Clark. I know this is probably confusing. It's confusing me, and I'm able to check my notes, whereas you're probably, I don't know, driving or doing the ironing. So far, we have Elizabeth Clark, who denounced Anne and Rebecca West after being watched for three nights. We have Anne Leach, who denounced the other three, as well as her neighbour, Elizabeth Gooding, and together, they implicated Helen Clark, Leach's daughter. Helen Clark was suspected of working with Elizabeth Clark, no relation, to kill Anne Parsley, the daughter of two of the former Watchers. All good? Good. Following these denunciations, the larger community became involved. Richard Edwards formalised his suspicions, as did the preacher Robert Taylor. Taylor blamed Gooding for bewitching his horse, and backed this accusation up by pointing out that Gooding was known to mingle with three widows suspected of being witches. These widows were, of course, Clark, West, and Leach. Gooding was questioned much like her friends, but insisted she had done nothing wrong. Unlike the other three, she was not in poverty. Her husband was a shoemaker. Yet by 1645, he had to supplement this dwindling trade with day work as a labourer, while she begged the charity of her neighbours. So while they weren't as deprived as some, the Goodings were far from prosperous, and it appears that Elizabeth had fallen foul of that classic English tradition. She had gone to Robert Taylor for food, and after being refused charity, went away mumbling and muttering. It was that night that his horse fell sick. Gooding was not alone in facing this circumstantial evidence. Helen Clark had argued with the Parsleys, at one point cursing their newborn daughter. This was the daughter that, less than two months later, died. Anne Leach had been evicted from her farm, only for the daughter of the new occupant to die from a strange illness, as did another woman when she refused to give Leach a bonnet. These coincidences catalyzed by communal strife and suspicion, had led to these six women rotting in a dungeon. Hopkins knew all of this, and yet he wanted more. Previous trials for witchcraft in the county had collapsed from lack of evidence, including the trials of Anne West. So he instructed Hoy to remove Rebecca West from the group, and have her taken to a private room. Here, in the words of Gaskill, he gently manipulated her into becoming an informer for the crown, end quote. Rebecca had already confessed that the devil had been a father, a brother, and a lover all in one, protecting her, providing for her after the death of her real father. She recalled times when her mother had reveled in the suspicious deaths of her enemies. Yet Hopkins wanted more. He promised the girl her freedom and her life and she in turn gave him what he wanted. The Sabbath. Now, her previous confession was obsolete, contradicted and replaced by the details of her new one. Now, Rebecca told of her mother, Anne, taking her to an appointment in Manningtree. As they walked, she was made to promise that whatever she saw and whatever she heard that night would remain a secret. When they arrived... They were greeted by the five other women that she had just left in the cell. They gathered in a circle, sat on chairs, 
and demons shaped like cats and dogs appeared, leaping into the laps of everyone but Rebecca. Rebecca was asked if she would like to join them, and upon saying yes, was made to swear on a strange book that she would keep these secrets even, quote, the rope were about her neck, and she ready to be hanged, end quote. As soon as she promised this, a demon kissed her and promised its service, before suckling from the marks that the searchers had found. Later, the devil himself appeared to Rebecca as a young man, irresistible, but as cold to the touch as earth. He kissed her, and they were married. Stern asserts this to have been, quote, a fearful thing to declare, end quote, while Hopkins goes into detail. Quote, The devil appeared to her, the said Rebecca, as she was going to bed, and told her he would marry her, and that she could not deny him. She said he kissed her, but was as cold as clay, and married her that night in this manner. He took her by the hand, and led her about the chamber, and promised to be her loving husband till death, and to avenge her of her enemies, and that then she promised him to be his obedient wife till death, and to deny God and Christ, end quote. Noting all of this down, Rebecca was returned to her cell, and Hopkins rode back to Manningtree. On Friday the 18th of April, he met with Grimston and Bowes, relaying to them the young girl's new confession, and the order was given for her to be brought to Manningtree. On the Monday, Rebecca was brought into the hall, and once again recounted her entry into the Sabbath. Yet again, the latest edition of the story was different. Now, she had had her induction only a month before, just prior to the arrest of Elizabeth Clark. She further described the acts of maleficium aimed at the Sabbath's supposed victims. These, too, were entirely new inventions, and the circumstances described in this confession contradicted the initial complaints that had led to the arrests. When Richard Edwards was next called to testify, he was first told of Rebecca's account before agreeing with the details, which therefore disputed his previous testimony. Others came forward, agreeing that they had been afflicted just as the girls said they had. Professor Gaskill summarises this session thus. It seemed that the witnesses, witchfinders, and committing judges had the case covered now. Whether the trial focused on conspiracy, conjuration, apostasy, or maleficium, they would be ready. Next time, we will learn the fate of the six women rotting in Colchester Castle, and see how the witchfinders Hopkins and Stern continue their adventure slash rampage through southeast England. As always, thank you to my patrons, the Hammer of the Witches executed today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, my Inquisitors Elaine D and Trish G, and all of my demonologists and theologians. They are all wonderful people, and you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. Besides supporting the podcast and me financially, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or the new IMDB of podcasts, which is Podchaser. It all helps grow the show and gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling when I see the download figures. Best of luck to the A-level students that have contacted me for revision ideas over the last few weeks. I hope your exams went well, or will go well, and that I had some positive impact on your studies. 
The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>